You're listening to A Show of Hearts, the podcast about finding the courage to live a deep and magical life. I'm your host, life coach, Rosemary Pritzker. My dear friend Jeff Feldman and I met at a sustainable business conference in Tucson almost 13 years ago. He's the senior vice president of Uribe Construction, which designs and builds both commercial and residential luxury real estate in Miami. But what Jeff and I are focused on in this episode is his passion for Haiti and particularly his experience working there for a year and a half after the massive earthquake that happened nine years ago on January 12, 2010. When we sat down to talk last year, President Trump had just called Haiti a shithole country, and Anderson Cooper had a strong emotional response on CNN. We picked up the conversation there. I'm just wondering what your response was to that video of Anderson Cooper, how it felt to watch it. There's too much emotion wrapped up. I was watching him go through this, and I was was like, you know what, I, I turned the TV off. I just turned the TV off. Because I knew where he was going, I knew where he was coming from, and I didn't really want to be there in the moment. And because my anger, I was so furious, and to see the, the, the leader of the United States make such a terrible and awful and completely false type statement like that was, was infuriating. I just had to turn it off. But he's not the only person. A lot of people have the completely wrong picture of, of what Haiti actually really is. I mean, most people don't really understand it the visuals that we see on television here for the last 30 years have been of struggle and strife and despair. And there's just so much more to it than that. It's such a special place. It's so different from anything that you've ever experienced. I mean, it's one of the happiest and most beautiful and, and fruitful places as much as they send the message that it's not. Jeff spoke of the dignity and resilience of the Haitian people, despite all the negative narratives about Haiti in the international press. I mean, these people are, um, many of them go to sleep every night with less than a dollar to their name, millions of people, and particularly those in in the capital in Port-au-Prince. But you can take everything away from them um, their homes, you could take away jobs, food, you could take everything away from them, but you cannot take away their dignity. They're the most dignified people. They're the strongest willed people. They're the most resilient people, I believe, anywhere on the planet. If you were to look in any of the shanties or any of the homes or anything in Haiti throughout, um, you'll see that they're completely organized. They're clean top to bottom. The shoes are by the front door. The spices are on a rack. I mean, the places, they are just, their fingernails are always clean. Their teeth are always clean. Their 
Hair is always brushed. And that's something that just runs through the entire population of that country. It's just pride in yourself and dignity. And you can't take that from them. What was your relationship to Haiti like before the earthquake? Well, it goes back till, to about when I was 12 years old, um, which is now 30 years. I was always, you know, as a kid working, I was a busboy, South Florida. I worked for a friend's father's diner as a 12-year-old. And all the dishwashers were Haitian. And I was a busboy, so my job was to bring the dishes back to the, to the dishwashers. And they were these unbelievably unique and different people. I also kind of grew up in white suburbia. So they were the first black people that I really knew in, in mass. I mean, there was definitely a few, um, you know, black kids throughout my schooling and all this other stuff. But this was an entire group of people. And they were from some island, you know, and out, off, off, offshore. And so being the way that I am, of course, I wanted to be their friends and learn their language and ask them how to say certain things and... They were the sweetest and the nicest and the kindest people. Even the ones that didn't speak English, we had this sort of unspoken just affection for each other. And so it was part of the reason why I studied French in school growing up. So from being a busboy and then just throughout the course of my life, I've always kind of been drawn to them, to Haitians. And then in 2006, I actually went the first time to go surf. One of my buddies went to high school with a couple Haitians um, that grew up here in Miami. And so they live back in Port-au-Prince, their family businesses in Port-au-Prince. And so we all went down to surf. I went 2006 for New Year's, 2007 we went back. I toured all over the countryside, you know, off-road surf safari, crazy. Driving down goat paths, the whole thing was wild, wild. And um, in 2008, there were four hurricanes that had in sequence, one after the other, passed right over Haiti and just absolutely annihilated Haiti, killing thousands, I shouldn't say thousands of people, but lots of people, stranding thousands of people, uh, killing livestock, destroying crops. I mean, it just really was devastating. And I started a, you know, sort of a local supplies relief sort of campaign. And then this thing happened a couple of years later and I was sort of a, a go-to guy mm. after my experience there. So when the earthquake happened, what motivated you to go? When we sort of started our supply sort of chain rally uh, here in Miami Beach, there came a point in time where we had personally delivered so much stuff, pharmaceuticals, clothing, feminine hygiene products, medical products, uh, just, I mean, so much stuff we had transported dozens and dozens and dozens of aircrafts over the course of the first five days after the earthquake that I said to the people with whom we were coordinating this at UM, University of Miami, who's, what's happening with this stuff when it hits the ground? Where is it? How's it getting dealt with? And the answer was, we don't really know. And it's a disaster. And, and it was. So I said, well, what if I can rally a group of uh, eight of us to go down and, you know, sort it out, figure it out? And the answer was, you know, when can you go? And so we went the next day. And so what happened when you got there? Well, we were on the first commercial airliner that was able to land at the airport. Um, it was the first five days. Um, the airport was, the airport was um, destroyed. The actual physical uh, building, the airport was destroyed and closed. The runway was unknown 
whether or not it was working or not working. But planes started landing there, and, and the U.S. military got there very quickly. And um, we were on the first commercial airliner that was chartered to get as many supplies, but also critical people down there to administer, I mean, from aid to prayer to security, I mean, you name it. I was on an airplane that you couldn't make it up if you tried. There were priests, nurses, doctors, mercenaries with weapons, animals, um, I mean, you name it, it was crazy. And the eight of us, our group from Miami Beach, um, we went down there and as we were landing, before we touched down, I, I circled the group up and said, listen, when we land, when this plane touches the ground, there's not going to be somebody here landing this plane and telling you, okay, welcome to Haiti and unloading our bags and unloading the, the belly of the aircraft that was loaded to the gills with supplies. I said, it's going to be us. When we get off the plane, we're going to be first off the plane and we're going to control the area around this aircraft, which is exactly what we did. We unloaded the plane. We told all the people to stand over here and don't move. And then we started to sort of daisy chain all of the uh, materials off the aircraft. And as we saw people's names on it or organizations' names or whatever it was, people claimed it and they took their stuff and then they moved along. What did it feel like to instantly have that responsibility on your shoulders? Um, it, you know, it's just kind of the way I'm programmed. Um, when there's a situation, you know, I'm the guy that jumps into the burning car <laughs> in the accident. You know, I'm the guy that takes control of the situation. Why is that? It's just the way I'm programmed. I don't really know any other way. Um, it's just it's just how I am. Um, and so one one thing I've always known is if you look the part and you act the part and you think you're the part, then people will give you the part. And so I just looked the part and uh, took control. And there came a point in time, a very, very quick point in time after touching down there, that, uh, you know, I personally was one of the main people at the airport where all of the aid and recovery and rescue missions were originating from within the capital. The airport grounds were, was ground zero for that. It was closed in, it was protected by the U.S. Air Force, and there were groups, search and rescue, aid groups, you know, and I don't really mean NGOs like you know, the clean water people or the, or the save the, the children people or, or school people. I'm talking like rescue teams that go into from South Africa, from Qatar, from Australia, from all over the world. The airport had a capacity of, I think it has a maximum capacity of 160 aircrafts landing and leaving per day. And it was maxed out for weeks. Aircrafts from all over the world, from small private jets to Russian Antonovs and, you know, uh, U.S. military C-17s and C-5s and, like, the biggest aircrafts you can imagine, filled, filled with supplies. And nobody there really to claim it, which is where we started to fill in the blanks. We just started claiming things off of the plane. If there wasn't somebody standing at the base of the plane, which there almost never was, the Air Force was tasked with taking the materials off the plane and putting it in the middle of the infield. So we just started taking stuff. What was that experience like witnessing like the whole world coming in to help? It was unbelievable. I remember seeing, you know, the Red Crescent from Turkey, aircraft from Brazil, from Qatar, from South Africa, from all over the world. It was incredible. 
I mean, absolutely incredible. Actually, the first aircraft I remember landing in Haiti after the earthquake from another country besides the United States was China. And China and Haiti do not have diplomatic relations because Haiti has relations with Taiwan. And Taiwan, China will not accept a country that has relations with Taiwan. But the first country to land a plane was China. And they literally dropped uh, several humongous crates of whatever the heck was in it. And they were just sitting there for days and days and days. And finally, we said, you know what? No one's coming to get this stuff. It was actually the Chinese materials that made us realize no one's picking anything up. If it's not picked up, it's just being taken to the middle of the infield. No, it was just otherworldly. It was surreal. Um, I was so hopped up. You know, I worked, I literally worked 20 hours a day. I would probably sleep four or five hours in a cot. Jeff had a connection to someone who managed private jets so he could get people, supplies, and himself in and out of Haiti. So after you got there, how long did it take before you got a really clear picture of the magnitude of what was going on? And like, was there a moment where it sort of hit you? I mean, it was kind of instant when we landed on the runway. And as we were flying in, you can see Port-au-Prince from the airplane. You could, I mean, I actually saw the National Palace collapsed from the airplane. Um, and when we touched down and you can see the total sort of mayhem happening inside the airport and then an airport that I had been to, um, you know, collapsed. But it was when I got on the truck that drove us back to the uh, hospital site and I could see the infield uh, was starting to fill up with stuff and all the camps, people were burning fires. I mean, it was like this crazy Mad Max, Burning Man sort of like disaster insanity that you, I just couldn't comprehend. Well, the National Hospital was 60 to 70% destroyed. They closed the gates because they didn't have a way to handle the number of people who needed to come in. There were bodies piled up out in front of the gates of the National Hospital. So I stumbled into the sort of triage area slash recovery area for people who had been brought into the airport. And it was the United Nations sort of air base. And it was inside of a hangar. I went there to find baggage from our plane that didn't make it off. And I stepped into this room full of people. People were crying. People were wailing. People had bandages on their heads. People had arms missing. It was nighttime. It was hot. It was crazy, crazy. And I remember seeing a little girl that was probably like 12 or 13 who had part of her head smashed. And that was when I finally first realized, holy moly, this is real. Like, these are the people. These are the actual humans who live here who were impacted by this. It was about two or three days later that the hospital that we were putting together at this campsite, for lack of a better term, on the airport grounds, where all 200 people who had been, you know, medical conditions of whatever, I mean, there were people having their arms amputated, their legs or whatever. We had to have this hospital up and running, built, air-conditioned, wood floors, the whole thing, by a, a Thursday or whatever the day of the week was. And we had 200 people transported from the UN airbase to this tent. And we literally were carrying bodies on people, 
patients on stretchers into this makeshift hospital. And I was like, oh my God, this person's so messed up. This person's arm is off. This, And then these were just days after the earthquake and people were still being found. In fact, I saw the very last survivor that they found, I believe it was 16 days after the earthquake. And I saw them, I saw them bringing her in to our, to our hospital. Um, did she make it? Yeah, she did. I think she was inside of the, the famous Caribbean market. The entire market completely collapsed, killing basically almost everybody inside. And she was trapped in a pocket and she was surrounded by food. So she was just eating and sort of drinking. And eventually, two weeks later, they got to removing the rubble from around her. And she wasn't well. I mean, she was severely hurt and dehydrated, and but she lived. So you've given a picture of what it looked like for the injured people, the people trying to help, et cetera, down there. But what happened to you down there? <laughs> um, the, that's a really big question. I, it, it was life-changing. I mean, that's the shortest, quickest answer. It was life-changing. You know, we throw around the terms, oh, gosh, it's a, it was a disaster, you know. How was the party at your house last night? Oh, it was a disaster. I mean, my plate, my house is a disaster. You don't know what a disaster is till you're in one. And this thing was a catastrophe of epic proportions. There were 250,000 people who got killed and another 250,000 people who were severely wounded. There were so many dead bodies that the Haitian government, rightfully so, made the decision to literally scoop them up with machines and dump them into dump trucks and bury them outside, way outside, the, about eight, 8 to 10 miles outside of the city limits. It sounds inhumane, it sounds terrible, but it had to be done. And, they, they, and they, if I'm not mistaken, I believe they, they burned them. It was the right thing to do, uh, as terrible as it sounds, that it had to be done. There were too many dead bodies. You can't let them just sit in the city and decompose, and, and there was nowhere to put them. An estimated 300,000 people died as a result of the earthquake that struck Haiti. Not everyone agrees that burying the dead in mass graves was a humane response. Many people still don't know where or how their family members died or where their remains are. Shortly after the earthquake, Haitian anthropologist and artist Gina Athena Ulissi wrote, The Haitian government treats the dead the way they treat the living, and described these mass graves as a human rights abuse. On the flip side, having all these dead bodies lying around was unsanitary, so they needed to be removed for the health and safety of the living. One could argue that there just were not the resources to dispose of these bodies in a more humane way. There were just too many, and all efforts needed to go towards helping the living, since the dire need was so great. Either way, it was a tough call. People say, well, why didn't they do this, or why didn't there is, and I always said the, the following, there was no they. When this thing went down, there was no they. There was no, why don't they help us? Why don't they open this? Why don't they do this? There was no they. They were half dead. It didn't discriminate between rich and poor and, you know, uh, neighborhoods or areas. Everything, everywhere was destroyed. And wherever you were, if the building collapsed, you were dead. And a lot of the politicians and a lot of the leaders of Haiti fled uh, they literally got on airplanes and flew to the Dominican or helicopters and flew to the Dominican, and they just got the hell out of there. 
It was it was total mayhem. What did it feel like to have everything be so out of control, so out of your control? Well, I mean, that's why I took control. I took control of an area that I could control and that I was given that control because everybody was so busy doing what they do. If you were a surgeon, you were operating. If you were a truck driver, that's what you were doing. You were using your truck. Everybody was in on helping however they could. Of course, there were always, you know, there's always forces of evil and there's always people trying to look for ways to to profit. I didn't fault any of the Haitians who were looking to steal food or any of that kind of stuff. Um, they were just looking to feed their families or their children or, or whatever the case may be. There were lots of instances where, you know, trucks would be taken or stolen or containers would be taken or stolen and then sold to the Dominican. All kinds of stuff like that was happening too, but I couldn't, I couldn't concern myself with that. I was concerned with the area that I had an immediate impact on. We, had, we, were, we were saving lives. I mean, that was the thing is get the hospital up and running. Um, I, at one point, uh, very, very quickly after arriving there, I had 77 Haitian volunteers who were desperate to volunteer because it, means, it meant that they got fed twice. They were also safe inside the 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 uh, inside the airport grounds, and you know, it was it was crazy. It was just crazy. I remember you telling me that um, after you got there with your group of eight, what was it like? Five days later, the rest of them all left. What gave you the guts or the courage or the bravery or whatever you want to call it to stay there despite how enormous it was and how intense it was? I you know. I just think I'm, I'm just built for that kind of stuff. I'm just, I'm tough like that. And, uh, I also knew that, and I felt that if I didn't continue to do what it was that I was doing every single day, that it may not, and I'm not saying that it wouldn't, probably wouldn't, but it may not get done. And I knew that the role that I had was so critical that I had to keep doing it to make sure that little space that I controlled was taken care of. But even since I was a kid, I was, you know, um, volunteering. And when Hurricane Andrew struck in, in the early 90s, uh, I drove around my neighborhood and did my own little canned food drive. And then I went with the food supplies down to Florida City, which was another disaster. By the way, the first disaster zone I ever saw was Florida City, um, a, 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 a stop on the way from South Florida to the Keys that I'd make every year at least once or twice to go fishing and hang out during the summer. Florida City was completely flattened, completely and utterly flattened. The only standing building was the Burger King. And uh, I saw that at, I don't know, 13 or 14. And that was the beginning of my sort of service and feeling like I have to help people. And that not only do I feel like I have to help people, I actually enjoy it. It feels good. Do you feel like you need to need to do that? Yeah. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't I'm not one to stand around and watch. And you know, I made a lot of sacrifices to be there. It took a toll on me physically, it took a toll on me emotionally. Um financially? Yeah. Definitely. But I did it because I knew it was the right thing to do. Um people needed it. And um I didn't really see an option. 
I just did. There was no option. There was no, what the hell was I going to do? Just, I remember one of the first few times I came back home, you know, for a few nights, I'd come home for, you know, two nights, three nights, a week, once in a while. A friend of mine was in town from Massachusetts and he said, hey, let's go to dinner. Where do you want to go? And I said, I, I really don't care. You pick it. And he said, let's go to Joe's Stone Crab, which is one of the nicest restaurants anywhere in Miami. It's very expensive. It's delicious. It's fantastic. They're famous for stone crabs. And I said, ah, okay, that's fine. Sure. And I remember just being kind of bummed I was there. I felt terrible about the amount of money we were spending. I remember looking out the window and sort of just fantasizing, daydreaming a little bit of, here we are, 750 miles away from utter catastrophe, from complete devastation, suffering. People were living on sides of hills because there was just, there was a place, there was space. People were living under tarps and tents. People were living in squalor, in mud, in rain. I knew a guy who lost two of three of his children. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. And here I am having a $60 dish of stone crabs and, you know, uh, uh, an $18 cocktail, and I'm just like, man, it's just, this doesn't feel right. It didn't, and it took a while for me to kind of come back from that. Mm-hmm. Um, is there one experience that sticks out in your mind that was the hardest thing that happened to you down there, or the hardest thing you witnessed? There's so many, it's hard to really know, but I actually watched a 10-year-old girl die um, literally right at my feet. Um, I walked up on it. I always I always kind of say in Haiti when this was all happening, wherever you were, there you were. And if something was happening when you were there, you were on it. It was you. That was your thing. And I just walked on, walked into the doorway of the hospital, and all of a sudden this girl went down on the floor. And um, I remember there was a couple local... U.S. Um, doctors, and then two Israeli doctors. Um, and everybody circled this little girl, and it was like, she needs blood, she needs blood. And I said to the Israeli doctor, take mine. And he said, I, we don't know what her blood type is. I said, I don't, I don't care, just try it. See, she had lost so much blood. I said, just try it, take mine, just do it. And I, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know if that's even possible, but they said, no, we can't, we just, we can't. And she literally, her eyes rolled back in her head and closed, and she expired on the floor at the feet of five men. Um, that was definitely not easy to watch, but I remember at that moment, I was like, okay, well, she's dead, and I'm busy. So I ran off to the next thing that I was in the middle of doing to begin with. And, you know, didn't really think twice about the fact that I just saw a 10-year-old girl die. Um, Did it hit you at some point later? There was a lot of stuff that happened just like that, that there was no time to think about. There was no time to process. And I remember having a Blackberry at the time, and my dad would text me saying, make sure you take time to process. Make sure you take time to think about all this stuff and let it out and I, I was like, I'm too busy, Dad. 
I'll talk to you tomorrow or whatever, you know, texting them back. I think I was texting you the same thing. You know, like I was just like, God, people don't text me. I'm not taking pictures. I'm not sending pictures. I'm busy. And yeah, there was a time where it was, it was about eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night. And I was standing in a moment of like, just calm. And there was control and quiet among the camp, this hospital camp. And I was standing outside um, and I heard the sound of people singing coming from inside the hospital. And it was like, it was like, it was like beautiful, like sort of gospel type Haitian gospel. They sing about um, God a lot. And so I, naturally I walked in to just kind of see what was going on coming from this hospital where during the daytime you hear people's arms getting sawed off. And I walked in and there's 200 beds and people, see Haitian people don't necessarily have nurses at their bedside. They have their family at their bedside. Their family is their nurse when they're in the hospital. So you have 200 patients and you have at least 200 other people sitting next to them. So there's four or 500 people inside of this tent, which was packed. And by the time I walked in, the entire place was singing this song, which I would give anything to know what song it was. And it was so beautiful. I had heard it twice. And it was so unbelievable and so beautiful that at that moment, that was the first time I, it all hit me. Like, what the hell happened here? How am I standing in the middle of this? This can't be real. And I just completely lost it. I mean, I cried like I probably had never cried before. And just, I mean, it was like I wept. And the guy who was my sort of right-hand man who walked next to me everywhere I went to help me translate and to help me get this and do that and uh, put his arm around me and I just cried even more. And he was crying and I was crying and everybody was crying and people were singing and it was just... It was out of body. It was unimaginable. Yeah. I remember you telling me that there were two times that you broke down like that. What was the other time? The other time was um, every morning the airport was locked off, closed off, and every morning there were, I, you know, I'd say thousands, but certainly hundreds of people, if not thousands of people, at the gate, the main entry, uh, trying to get into like a driveway gate to get into the hospital because they knew that there was medical care, there was food, there was water, there were there was life, there was safety, security. So part of what I had created on my own was a volunteer task force of Haitians that I had a list of their names and 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 you know I had them on two shifts. I had a morning like a 12-hour morning shift and then like a 12-hour afternoon overnight shift and so one morning I went over to early on early on I went over to the to the gate the air force opens the gate there's thousands of people very orderly standing there not running in but the gates open they're all standing there and everybody yelling my name Mr. Jeff Mr. Jeff I speak English flashing resumes flat please you know I, I work I work Mr. Jeff and then once my name was known they all knew it. So everybody, Mr. Jeff, Mr. Jeff. But I knew I was looking for my list. So the Air Force guys would give me a, a bullhorn and 
And uh, I would start calling out my names, and I would see their arm reaching through this wall of people, and I would literally grab their arm and pull them through the people. And I would tell them, stand right here and don't move. Um, and then I'd, you know, so I'd get the first batch of, you know, 30, 35, 36 people out of this crowd at about seven o'clock in the morning. And I would literally march them single file from the gate to the back of the hospital. And somehow or another, and I don't know how they ever did it. They're very crafty. I would count when we got to the camp before we walked in and there'd be an extra one. I don't know where they came from, how they got in and how they got in the line without me seeing it, but there'd always be like an extra guy. So one morning, um, there were two extra guys in the line and somehow they got in and I was like, you guys know, like, you can't stay here. You have to leave. Um, and they're, and, you know, don't make me call the guards on you. And, and they, they both kind of said like, no, nah, please don't, we'll work. We I speak English. We'll work. I'll do whatever you need. I'm like, no, 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 we got plenty of people. We got too many people. You got to leave. Don't make me, uh, don't get me upset. And they were like, please, we have, we have children. We need milk. I need to work. I need to be able to feed them. Don't make us go back out there. And I was like, don't make me cry. Like you, you're going to make me, you have to. And they were like, please don't make us leave. And I was like, please leave. They were like, we can't leave. And I was like, you have to leave. And then I just started to, I just started to like well up and one guy put his arm on me and then I just, that was it. I sat down on this wall and I put my hands in my face, um, I, you know, my face in my hands, I should say. And, and I just cried like uncontrollably like this. These are humans. These people eat, breathe, drink like we do and love their family and their kids like we do. And they're desperate. They're desperate and I can't make them leave. And I just all came up and out and I just, it was the, the second time um, that this happened to me when I was there. And from that point on, I was just like, all right, man, you just got to be <laughs> made of steel. Why? Uh, because there was too much sadness. There was too much despair. There was too much desperation. There was too much pain. And you just can't feel it. You have to just not feel it. You'll feel it eventually. You don't need to feel it now. Right now it's about the business. Mm. Did you find space to feel it later? Um, I think so. I mean, what I found is that it became the topic of conversation for everybody that I knew for so long that it was like all I ended up talking about but I was never really able to tell the stories of what I experienced because there was too much story to tell. There was too many things that happened. I have potentially, I don't know, forgotten about more than I could ever remember because there was 24 hours a day for almost a year and a half of stories. Uh, good, bad, fun, funny, scary, you know, threatening, all kinds of stuff. Um, that it just became part of, I guess, my life. And so, I don't know. I mean, I think so. Was there an element, too, of, um, you know, when you were talking about the guys that you couldn't turn away, one of them putting their arm around you, et cetera, it reminds me of soldiers in the trench together in war, where they've got this shared 
experience, camaraderie, shared purpose, a sense of belonging and seeing each other that you couldn't possibly have shared with the people here sitting, like wanting you to share your story. So like, I imagine telling the story to people who had never been there, couldn't begin to comprehend it. I mean, I don't know, you tell me, what did that feel like? Well, I'm not a soldier. I've never been a soldier. I've obviously never been to battle. But I can tell you that in my mind, this is the closest thing to it that you could ever imagine. There absolutely was this feeling of we're all in this thing together, um, camaraderie, this you know brotherhood, sisterhood, of course. And, and it also led to some confrontations as well because I felt if you weren't on board with the way we're moving this thing forward, you need to get the hell out of the way. And so there were a few instances where people would come in because it became regular where there were flights to bring people in who wanted to help and volunteer. Doctors, nurses, medical support type people, but then also just regular people who wanted just to volunteer. What ended up happening was once it stabilized, people started to come in because they wanted to see it. And that hurt, that really pissed me off. It upset me. Um, I didn't want them around. I didn't want to see them. People came with cameras. They were taking pictures. You know, um, they were becoming disaster tourists. I can tell you that back in those days, I had problems with people who were trying to create a sort of fame for themselves using the situation. Um, I definitely was angry at people who were using our success, and I say success based on lives saved, um, help given, aid rendered, and people were using it as, hey, look at this group I'm a part of, and look at me, look at me, look at me, and I'm going, man, look at you on my effing back. Look at you on the tears and the blood of all these thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are literally dying over here and you're patting yourself on the back because of it, I'm going, no, that's not, that, that upset me. Mm. That to this day makes me mad that mm. people did that and, uh, you know, they don't do it now because it's not, it's not fashionable. Um, but when it was fashionable, people used it to propel themselves to, yeah. uh, you know, and they were clogging up the operation because they were eating our food, drinking our water, sleeping in our beds, and then sort of the the media hype coming through and and celebrities passing through. And I'll never forget John Edwards, who at the time was going through his marital, whatever the heck he had done. And he came through and I remember telling him to get the hell out of here. Geraldo Rivera came through and was doing some sensational piece. I remember telling him to get the hell out of here. Um, and then I saw Sean Penn walk through, and he walked through, um, you know, with a very determined look on his face, his hat pulled down low, a group of people walking alongside of him, and then they came in, they came out. He wanted to see what was happening. A couple days later, I had heard that Sean Penn had started a, a camp up in the hills of Port-au-Prince in a, in a neighborhood called Penchonville, actually at the Penchonville Country Club. And so... That was where the 182nd Airborne Division was bunking down too. So Penn had linked up with the commander of that group, the 182nd Airborne, and basically said, I'm not here for TV ratings. I'm not here. I'm here to work. I'm here to work and I'm here to help. And the, they said, 
if you mean what you say, you can stay with us and make this your camp. So he did, and he made good on what he said he was going to do, and they created a a camp. And what ended up happening was there were 60,000 people who amassed on the hillside of this golf course. And um, JPHRO um, was, was founded by Sean Penn and became sort of a very central location for aid. This was in a time when there was no communication throughout the country. Jeff began working closely with Sean Penn and moved his own base of operations to Sean's Pensionville camp. There came a point in time where I, I said, hey, this is where I need to stay. I'm, I'm doing all this stuff in Haiti. I need a place to kind of centralize, and I'm going to work here. I'm going to help. And we trusted each other. He trusted me. I was staying in his camp. We got a lot of stuff done together. And um, I, I knew him to be a, a tremendous individual, a truly a beautiful human being. People will say what they will about Sean Penn, and I can tell you from personal experience, he is a fantastic human being, and he doesn't do it because he needs to. He doesn't do it because he gets money from it or because he does it because he can. He has that same sort of internal, I have to do this, that I have. If you like what you're hearing in this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review A Show of Hearts on iTunes. Reviews and ratings do a lot for our visibility, so thanks so much for helping spread our message of courage and living from the heart. Really want to show your support? Share a screenshot of this episode in your stories on Instagram, at A Show of Hearts. There is no doubt that Jeff worked hard and selflessly in Haiti, and he took on a great deal of responsibility. But he also got extra credit simply because he is a white American man. Jeff also had the privilege to come and go, to leave Haiti whenever he wanted, a privilege many of the people he worked with in Haiti did not have. There were times where I would literally fly home at midnight, be home by 2 o'clock in the morning. I would shower, I would shave, I would eat, I would sleep, and then I'd be on the next aircraft out at 7 a.m. and back, and nobody even knew I was gone. Meanwhile, I flew out in a Learjet and flew home in a, you know, Boeing business jet. It was unbelievable. I mean, it was truly incredible. I mean, I'm sure this is something that you've probably pondered a lot. You show up there as a white American man. Those are three separate sources of privilege. And that opens all kinds of doors for you and gives you automatic credit, et cetera. And yet at the same time, it's one thing to like choose to show up somewhere where there are a lot of people who are there not by choice and like stay a couple days and like, I can't take this and leave. It's another thing to like show up and stay and like be in the trenches with people. Um, but I kind of just wanted to like bring up that whole subject of like the whole white savior thing, et cetera. And just anything that you, that's gone through your mind over the years about that. Yeah. I mean, I've experienced the whole spectrum of that from, you know, people shouting at me, not knowing who I was or what I was there doing. For example, you could walk into the airport Anybody, anybody that's there, any Haitian that's there could see you coming off of a plane from Miami um, and think that you are just yet another missionary or yet another uh, charity worker or somebody that's going to come in, love the country, or, 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 or you're, you're, you're somebody who's coming to pillage, which happens a lot there too. Um, you're, you're coming in and, and you're, you're going to disappear like the rest of them. That's, uh, you know, a very common 
feeling from Haitians. Um, it, like I say, it depends on where you are. Um, I find myself uh, on the coast. I go like, when I was there two months ago. I went down to Jacmel with some friends, and we went and surfed, and you know, ate grilled conch by the beach and drank beers all day and hung out and, and, and laughed and played. And we were hanging with the kids and the locals and they look at you differently than the people at the airport look at you. They look at you like, wow, we're amazed that you're here. You know, it's, it, it's, so it depends on where you are and, and when you're there. Um, when people see you working and really, you know, giving yourself to them and to their cause, whatever you may be doing, they love it. You know, they love it and they appreciate it and they feel you. You know, they feel you. Those people are so, um, on one hand, they're stone cold, emotionless about certain things. But on the other hand, they're also deeply emotional and connected to you if they feel you. And so, I, I, like I said, I've, I've experienced all of it. Um, I've had my life threatened. I've had people welcome me into their homes. I've had people make me food in a tent. All of it. Yeah. There's also, I mean, it's just, it's such a complicated subject of like, you know, here we are a couple of white people talking about this pretty much entirely black country. And, you know, I, I, I don't know what we can really say about that because we are who we are. And you, really what it is, what it's about is like, you can speak to what, what you can speak to through your own experience. You had the experience that you had, you know. When I talk about Haiti to Haitian people, they always at first say, oh, you know, are you a missionary? Or, or you know, what, what do you go down there for? How do you know about Haiti? And then I tell them I've been there 38 times, you know, and they kind of, wow. Or you say a couple phrases in, in Creole or you know about a city that they've never even been to or the list goes on or you, you know obscure foods that they like to eat or the name of a certain type of soda that they drink and they really then they just their eyes connect because you've say, taken the time to you get, know yeah. my haiti you really know my haiti you know and that's when people say that's when you see their smiles and their eyes really brighten they love to know that i know haiti um they want people to know it um, because if they're here in the states they miss it it's their home they live here, but that's their home. That's their home, their, their mother nation, you know? And um, so they don't really look at me personally like just another white person going down and doing their thing and then never going back. They look at me as somebody who's gonna, who loves it like they do. Jeff then shared the story of the day he decided to leave Haiti. I woke up one morning and said to myself, I'm leaving Haiti today. I don't care what it takes, I'm leaving today. But before I left... I decided to not tell anybody until 15 minutes before the plane took off. And I had gone down to the plane by myself and I told the pilot, I'm on this plane. You do not leave without me on it. I'll be back in an hour when we or in 30 minutes when we take off. I went back to the camp. I told a couple of the people, go inside, go find everybody, tell everybody I'm leaving. And people came running out. And they all said, no, no, you can't leave. No, don't leave. I said, I'm leaving. I'll be back. Don't worry. I'll be back. Don't, I'm, I'm. And they picked me up and they carried me out of the camp and were shouting and cheering and screaming, laughing and smiling. 
And I was kind of like, oh, no, geez, don't, 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 don't pick me up, no. And, um, you know, they did. And uh, then they put me down, and I got into this little van and headed down. And Ultimately, Jeff's experience in Haiti continued to impact his life, and he found different ways of remaining engaged with the Republic. One of the things that I took from Haiti was, and it was an effort to raise awareness and to raise funds, was the art you know, Haiti is a country that is steeped in and based on creativity and art and music. It's the one thing you can't take away from them. Their dignity and their creativity are the two things that they have endless amounts of. And so I created with other folks a, a few different art shows. We had a very big art show in 2010 called the Haiti Art Expo, where we created so much hype. It was fresh. Um, it was during Art Basel, the, the biggest contemporary art fair in, in the United States. We created the Haiti Art Expo, and I believe we raised about $250,000 in art sales. And we had celebrities there, and we had uh, tons of hype, and we had a big Haitian rah-rah band, and we had four nights of, of programming. Um, we did the Haiti Art Expo in December of, of 2010, and again in 2011. I did an art show up in New York. I've sold art to just private collectors. It's fantastic. So that's something that's hmm. always kind of with me. I have it in my home. I have photography in my home. And, you know, the, every time I see, I live in Miami, so every time I'm with Haitians all the time. Yeah, so it's always with me. You know, it's, it's always a big part of my, my existence. What's it like for you to go back to Haiti now? It took me a while to go back. I, I basically, from 2000 and, I don't know, I'd say 12... I don't think I went back until 2017. Um, I, it was exhausting to even think about stepping foot there. The traffic, the heat, the exhaust, the dust. It's just, it's just so high maintenance to be there in Port-au-Prince. And of course, the memories, it was just like, I needed it to not go. Um, so going back in March of 2017 with eight of my friends for one of my very best friends bachelor party was just the best i tell people all the time you could go to haiti today as a tourist and you'll have the most amazing time and you're not going to regret it you're not going to get kidnapped you're not going to get killed you're going to have the best time of your life because it's such a beautiful place the people are so friendly so welcoming there's not really much of a need to spend much time inside of the capital it's about the provinces. That's where all the magic is. And Haiti is magic. Mm. It's magic. Mm. It's different. Yeah. Why? Why is it magic? There's something there that is um, very mystical and magical. And I don't know what it is. I, 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 I don't know if anybody knows what it is, including the Haitians. They may. They're steeped in magic and steeped in mysticism and in stories. When you were there during the, the earthquake... Did you feel any of that mysticism or anything unexplainable happening while you were there? At that point, not really. But the night where I heard the people singing, that was that there was something there in the room that was like I had I never felt anything like it before. What did it feel like? It just felt it felt like it felt like touching God. And I'm not, I'm not a religious person. It's not, it wasn't a religious experience. It was like touching humanity, feeling humans on a, on, a, on a larger scale, you know, like the global sea of consciousness in that moment was like, 
coursing through my my veins. Yeah. You know, where you just know we're all one, we're all people, we're all the same creature. And, you know, that was that moment. What does Haiti need now? What's it like there now? Um, I mean, the rubble's been cleared. Um, the problems still persist. The, the way the government functions, the corruption, you know, that stuff's baked into their... I think, baked into their society. And I don't necessarily know that I have the answers of how that's ever going to get unwinded. But I can tell you that much of what we hear and see and much of what we know to be the case is really based in Port-au-Prince, a city that was built for 300,000 that has 3 million. The city's physically broken. It's broken. There's 10 times too many people. Part of the reason is because the people that are living out in the provinces have to cut trees for heating to eat. They don't have electricity in a lot of these areas, so they have to create heat through flame. And by doing that, they cut down immature trees based on need. If you look down at Haiti and the Dominican Republic from the air, you'll see a lush green country on one side of the island and pretty much the opposite on the other. There's a long history of deforestation in Haiti that dates back to the Haitian Revolution in 1804, when it became the first black republic in the world. The U.S. and Europe refused to trade with them, and France imposed a tax that Haiti paid for 80 years. The new Haitian government, composed of elites, tried to impose a plantation economy on the population that did not serve the majority. As a result, the people, particularly outside the capital, have been left to fend for themselves ever since. There is no standard electricity grid or gas pipeline, so people use firewood for cooking. They have completely deforested much of the provinces of, of the entire country, which then denudes the soil, which then when it rains runs into the ocean, which affects the, 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 the sea, the marine life. Um, well, and that's a, one of the pieces of why the two countries on the same island, the other one being the Dominican Republic, Republic, when one of these natural disasters happens, whether it's an earthquake, hurricane, whatever, the effects on the two countries is completely different. And from what I've read, that's one of the reasons why. Absolutely. And one of the things that I would love to see the Haitian government do, I, I wish they would do this, would be to subsidize propane. I mean, subsidizing propane, just giving people propane, even if it's for the smallest coin they make. I don't care what it is. Make people earn it, give it to them. Um, if they stop cutting down the trees within some number of generations, they would be able to have, you know, I would, I would hope that we would be able to have, restore some of the damage that's been done. But that damage is the root of so many of the problems of that country. The environmental destruction has led to hunger and poverty and like I'm talking like abject poverty and 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 illness and you know so many other things that if if that was solved like they by the way they did in the Dominican the Dominican did that and it changed the country now their government still has issues but they don't have that as an issue I asked Jeff who's making a significant effort to reforest Haiti he said that one of JPHRO's main projects is exactly that their focus is not only on reforestation, but
but to create jobs to replace those of people who cut down trees as their income. JPHRO is working with the Haitian government on these efforts, and their goal is to eventually make it a national movement. To learn more, visit the link in the show notes. Something that really struck a chord with me was one day I was in the airport in Port-au-Prince and I watched one of these missionary groups come in and their t-shirts said something about saving Haiti on their shirts. Everybody wears their color-coded t-shirts so that they see each other, they don't get lost. And the Haitians are so used to seeing groups come in that fall in love with Haiti that never go back and they never live up to their promise of, to this child, I'll be back. They never come back. So they're so used to this. And now all of a sudden, this group of, of white people come in off of an airplane that says, save Haiti. And the Haitian, I saw a Haitian man say, what do you mean save Haiti? You don't, you're not going to save Haiti. Get out of here. I don't want you to. You're not saving Haiti. We don't need to be saved. And I was like, you know what? He's right. They're fine. Are there problems? Yes. Could it be better? A million percent. But they don't need to be saved by you or by me. They need to be visited. They need to be uh, you know, uh, respected. They need to be paid well for the things that they provide. Buy their art, listen to their music, eat their food, visit Haiti. That's the best thing we could do. And there's plenty of tourism infrastructure there. And you don't have to be uh, um, Indiana Jones to go visit. It's a great place. It's a beautiful place with so much history. So, you know, I tell people to go, go visit go visit. You know, there's plenty of information on the internet about visiting tourism. They have an unbelievable ministry of tourism. They've done a great job of branding it as a beautiful, fun, safe place. The food is fantastic. The people are sweet. The beer is delicious. Is there anything else you would want to say, like, to, to address Haitians directly who are listening? The Haitian diaspora is very large and very powerful, um, and I would encourage any one of them to continue to promote their country and their homeland, regardless of—it's easy for me to say, but regardless of their feelings towards whomever's in power or whatever those political issues are, encourage people to visit. I recently followed up with Jeff about the latest situation in Haiti. We talked at length about current events and sustainable development. I've been hearing in the news about like violent protests, uh, people asking the president to step down. Can you just give us a little bit of a picture of what's going on right now? Yeah, I don't really know all the details. It's, it's hard to know the truth of what's really happening there right now. It depends on who you ask, who you talk to. Everybody sort of has a different perspective. Some people love the president. Some people think he's terrible. I can only tell you that um, about two weeks ago, nobody worked for about a week uh, and they were demanding that the president steps down and that there's frustrations um, that even if he does, they're going to be forced into having to deal with a new transitional government, which is what they already have right now. Um, so I know you went to Haiti recently, a couple months ago. What does Haiti look and feel like right now? It's generally unchanged from all the other times I've been there. I will tell you that I was pleasantly surprised by... I did a lot of driving through Port-au-Prince. Um, actually, I was there for a wedding, so I spent a few days down at the beach, and then when we came up to the capital for the wedding, we were driving through the city a lot, and I saw a lot of really well-paved streets and sidewalks, and that's a huge thing. I mean, that helps 
immensely. It gives people hope in some ways. So I, I noticed a lot of it, more than I had seen before. So it sounds like there, some real progress has been made in some ways. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, after the earthquake and all of the funds that came in and with President Martelli and, you know, he set out to do well, um, they did do a lot of positive things. One of the most and the easiest things to do is just paving some of the streets in the capital. I mean, the capital hasn't been improved since the 70s. So it was that was one of the very first things that they could do. Um, oftentimes when they do that, they do a cheap version, uh, and it washes away in the rain. But this time they really did it. Um, it appears to be that they did it well in certain places. We discussed how in the beginning of a massive catastrophe like the earthquake, you just have to do whatever you can to help in the moment. But more long term, just giving humanitarian aid creates dependence and leaves people disempowered. So there needs to be more focus on sustainable solutions by merging humanitarian efforts and development. I told Jeff about Dr. Paul Spiegel of the John Hopkins Center for Humanitarian Health, who says that giving refugees and displaced people jobs, bank accounts, insurance, etc., helps not only with their dignity, but also with improving local economies. My friend John Kluge, founder and managing director of the Refugee Investment Network, created a matchmaking service between impact investors and impact actors, focused on the 70 million refugees and internally displaced people in the world. He said, we need someone to help connect refugee entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, and technical assistants. What does sustainable development look like in Haiti? What's the ideal scenario and who's doing the best work? Well, after the earthquake, everybody and their brother came down hoping to change the world and, um, you know, open up their NGO or their nonprofit or their charity or whatever in Haiti. And the overwhelming majority of them, um, you know, didn't make it for the long term. There are, are a few that uh, were there from the beginning and have absolutely uh, survived and have become sort of the forefront of what's possible, um, down there. Um, Sean Penn went down there as we discussed and, um, started the JPHRO, uh, which is still down there doing incredible work. Uh, they basically have the overwhelming majority of the people that work there are actually Haitians. They've taught them and trained them and empowered them to be able to operate on their own. Um, there was a school that was started by, uh, 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 some folks from LVMH, um, Louis Vuitton, Moet and Hennessy, enormous global brand. They basically started a school. They just basically plopped down the government of one of the areas, gave them land, and they said, we're building a school. And they have built the uh, Lycée Jean-Baptiste uh, Pointe du Sable, which is an unbelievable school um, that is uh, funded through Hand in Hand for Haiti, which is an amazing uh, 501c3. Um, organization. And they basically give the kids um, free school, uh, health care, two square meals a day. They pick them up. It's, they have a soccer field. I mean, it is as legit as any organization anywhere in the world um, in St. Mark, Haiti. It's just absolutely incredible. They have really knocked the, the ball out of the park. Um, and they're teaching kids English. They're teaching kids French. The IET Community Trust is another phenomenal organization. Um, and, you know, they're focused on their, their three main pillars, which are the environment, entrepreneurship, and civic engagement. So they're, they're really 
providing and giving local people the tools to be able to, you know, fend for themselves. They're, they're teaching, they're learning, they're empowering, they're supporting so that someday they don't have to exist anymore. One of the biggest problems in Haiti is that a lot of the organizations that are down there are down there for the sake of being down there, simply to exist. Their end game should be to, at some point, not exist. They to be obsolete. Have, yeah, yeah. To, to have achieved their, their goals of, of creating a self-sustaining future mm-hmm. for Haiti and, and, and her people. We were going to end it there, but then Jeff told an amazing story that sums up so many aspects of Haiti's relationship to the U.S., Haitian ingenuity and resilience in the face of negative narratives, and specifically his friend Gilbert, who knows how to get what he wants. You know, Haiti has always been sort of a on the pirate route and a stop for pirates. There's pirate ships and treasure and, and all kinds of ships from uh, centuries ago that are, that are sunken off the coast. It's a very dangerous and, and rugged coast. And so a friend of mine, Gilbert, he actually, he's a commercial diver in Haiti um, by profession. And he uh, gets a phone call one day, uh, phone rings and he, he picks up the phone and it's a guy called Peter Arnett, who was the senior foreign correspondent for CNN back in the, in the 90s and early 2000s. And Gilbert says, uh, you know, how can I help you? And Peter Arnett says, oh, I understand that you are, uh, you know, Haiti's leading boat captain. And Gilbert says, uh, not being a boat captain at all, says, that's right, I am. Uh, what can I do for you? And, and Peter Arnett says, you know, there's violence in the streets and there's fighting and, and, and gun battles and, um, you know, we want to come down and get a story. We want to see this. We want to get a story. Gilbert says, okay, well, um, you know, that's going to cost you $50,000. And Peter Arnett says, well, I mean, you know, we can't, 50000 is too much. We could give you thirty. And he says, well, it's $50,000. It's how much it's going to cost. Uh, for me to do this for you. And he says, well, we can get you $40,000. And Gilbert says, of course, knowing that $40,000 is way too much money to be paid for this. He says, okay, that's fine. So Peter Arnett flies down to Haiti and Gilbert picks him up and takes him, him and his cameraman to this boat. That he's scrounged up out of He scrounged up. He, he, you know, I'm sure he, you know, <laughs> borrowed it from a friend and uh, takes Peter Arnett and the cameraman to this remote piece of uh, of the coast off of the capital where he stages a gun battle and fully fakes out the 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 news crew and they're recording this thing and all of a sudden the 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 guys firing these guns are heading towards Peter Arnett and the cameraman and Peter Arnett's running we got to get to the boat we got to get the hell out of here we got to go 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 and Gilbert says to him $50,000 and Peter Arnett says $50,000 let's go let's go so he raced him back to the boat and, and uh, you know, got paid $50,000. So, Well, and then didn't they air it on oh, CNN? It was aired that night. So then the whole world thinks there's this thing going on. It was aired that night. Didn't you also say that, like, uh, the only conflict was actually in Port-au-Prince? Yeah. Yeah, it was totally made up, completely fabricated, and aired on CNN that night as, you know, some gun battle raging uh, violence in, in Haiti, which was totally untrue. Yeah, so then we we watch or hear the news or read about it, whatever, like of all these things going on all over the world, who's to say if any of it, you know, is you don't know. what it looks like? It, it Most of the time it probably isn't, but you always got to question the reality. 
So yeah, Haiti's got a lot of those kinds of stories and you know, it's, it's really an unbelievable place. It's really an incredible place. To learn more about the various efforts in Haiti that we mentioned in this show and how you can help, there's a list of links in the show notes. For more detail on grassroots Haitian responses to the hurricane recovery and Haitian perspectives on this period, we recommend the book Haiti Needs New Narratives by Gina Athena Ulysses. Thank you for listening to A Show of Hearts. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe in iTunes and share it with your favorite people. Visit our website, ashowofhearts.com, where you can sign up for emails and explore all our episodes in depth. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at A Show of Hearts. Remember to choose courage, even when it's scary, and join me in igniting the world with our hearts. Bye-bye.